ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon. This is Chickie Fitzgerald, and we have a very, very interesting discussion that we're bringing to you today. It's very different than what we normally talk about on The Game Changer, but it came to my attention at a recent conference uh, for something called the Hero Club and the C-Suite Network, that there is an industry that is really having some uh, distinct challenges. And it's easy for those of us who are not in that industry to think we are not affected. And I want to introduce you to Alan Davis. And Alan, why don't you tell us a little bit about your company and about why you started the C-Suite Network? And again, you can do a full introduction of who you are and what your day job is. But at the end of the day, we're going to be talking today about the C-Suite Network and the Manufacturing Council, with which Alan has uh, jointly launched with some other folks. Yeah, thank you, Chickie. And, uh, you know, as uh, I thought about the opportunity we would have to talk today, I, I really was trying to figure out, you know, what is it that people really would want or need to hear about manufacturing in particular. But I have to take one step back in order to kind of give the framework for it. A number of years ago, I was, um, in fact, back in 2001, um, I was working with a, one of the largest um, airlines in the world. And at that time, um, I had actually moved my family out of the country to work with that airline uh, to help come up with a solution to a problem that they had um, of um, basically revenue that they were losing or leaking. Um, they called it a revenue leakage um, uh, problem that they had. And they weren't sure exactly how to stop that leakage. Um, and we ended up building a solution um, that was very timely for the airline industry. If you uh, may recall, you know, I'd moved my, uh, my family out of the country on September 1st, 2001, and September 11th occurred 10 days later. Oh, my It was gosh. just a impact to literally everyone. You know, it doesn't matter where you go. You, when you talk to someone, they, were, they remember what was happening then and how they were impacted. But the airline industry in particular was um, the most devastated from that particular event. And um, this particular solution came at a time when that industry needed it the most. And uh, we had put together a, a program where we married up the, um, all the fares and rules for, all the, uh, for that airline for all flights that they flew every day in the world. And uh, we figured right. out who sold the ticket, how much the ticket sold for. And then we cross-referenced uh, that back to the receivables um, that they had to find out if the sell of the ticket complied with the contractual arrangements in place um, for the sell of that ticket um, at that time. And the reason we did it is because their fraud department had started to uncover issues where um, agents had been selling tickets for sometimes tens of thousands of dollars for a first-class ticket and sending only a few hundred dollars back to the airline for the sale of that. Interesting. And so there was uh, this big, massive disparity and a loss of a lot of revenue to the airline industry. And so when, when we built that technology, um, we actually turned it on in the first two weeks. Uh, we put about 
$4 million worth of claims out in the first two weeks. And um, the travel agencies just uh, came, um, came unglued. In fact, it was a pretty space. <laughs> I'll bet they did. <laughs> it, it was a really big issue, right? And, and uh, British Airways said, okay, we, um, we hear you. You're, you're upset, right? Uh, but, they, but they said that um, we'll give you a notification period. And at the end of the notification period, we expect you to comply um, with the contractual arrangements that are in place. And we helped them recover tens of millions of dollars. Oh, and they figured it had a deterrent effect of um, well over $100 million um, per year. And so um, for them at that time, it, it was a really, really impactful solution. And then as that rolled out to all the world's major airlines, we could see it had a, a very positive impact in the airline industry. And so uh, with that, I've, I've gone on to look at other industries and other solutions in other industries. And so um, really we started i5 services with the intent of being able to identify the major issues in an industry and help to, to solve those, uh, those issues. And where needed, we would bring technical solutions to bear that would bring about that lasting change in an industry. Right. And so that fast forward now, that brings us to manufacturing where, um, you know, the, the, some of the statistics in manufacturing are really staggering. If you go back and look at the, you know, anywhere from 2000, even to current, Right, um, right. You know, and you know what, Alan, before you go there, though, I, I want to kind of back up because you intro you introduced a really, really interesting dynamic. And it happens to be in an industry that I've spent my entire adult life in. Right. And, and so not only do I remember where I was that week, but I watched what happened with the airline industry. And I'm going to tie this back to manufacturing, because what occurred at that particular moment in time in the airline industry, as you may remember, is an enormous number of airplanes were grounded, not only that week in response to the terrorism, but in the months ensuing after that. So the airline or the companies that were manufacturing aircraft for the airlines were faced with crisis because the airlines were actually, here in the U.S. at least, parking airplanes by the dozens. In fact, for some airlines, by the hundreds in the desert, never to return to service, right? And so this crisis uh, occurred as a result of that. And the downstream, you know, when I look back at it, we looked at what happened during that time frame of of the airplanes being grounded uh, after September 11th and how uh, vegetables weren't being delivered from Chile and, you know, wine wasn't being delivered from the wine country because everything traveled by air. And I want to give people a a framework. And and I met Alan Davis at the C-Suite Network uh, manufacturing Council or, or this presentation that he did uh, back in early June. And the second evening that we were all in town, I ended up having dinner with Alan and uh, several other gentlemen. And I, I remember thinking, what in the world am I doing at a table with a bunch of manufacturing guys? But very quickly, we started talking about what Alan is, is uh, leading into when he is going to talk about some of the statistics in the manufacturing industry. But I'm married to a guy who sells large equipment. And over the course of the last two years, 
his income has been cut in half, not because he's not selling the same amount, but because of the manufacturing crisis and the fact that these companies, uh, the economy is so good, right, that they cannot produce enough trucks fast enough. And, you know, I said to my husband a couple of months ago, well, why can't they just add another shift? Right. And, and so, Ellen, I, I know we're going to talk about some of these specific issues with the people side of things and, and the uh, ability of a community. Some of these manufacturers are in very small communities. So what I want to do uh, is to kind of walk you through talking to our audience about why they should care about this thing that sounds like, you know, uh, again, my same reaction about dinner that night. What in the world am I doing listening to a radio show about manufacturing, right? So right. Uh, I loved how you started that presentation in San Francisco about talking about innovation, right? right. And how we are being out-innovated. Talk to us about the number of patents that are filed in the U.S., by U.S.-based companies, and I think this will astound our listeners. Yeah, you know, and, and this, along with a, a few other statistics, I, I think really helped to highlight kind of the impact that manufacturing has. And to your point, Chicky, every single one of our lives are impacted by manufacturing in one way or the other, whether we realize it or not, right? Everything from the phone that we carry to the computer we use or the desk or the, the car that we drive or transportation that we take, everything. Um, is a is a byproduct in one way or another of the manufacturing process, yes. right? And so, um, the the innovation side of that is we started to lose a significant amount of innovation in the U.S. in manufacturing. And um, you know, during a period of time, really, you look from about 2000 to around 2010 to 2012, somewhere in that uh, area, um, there was a significant downturn in manufacturing. And uh, so much so, and I'll, I'll share two statistics before I go to the patent one. Um, the first one is, is that 78,000 manufacturers closed their doors in the first decade of our century, right? Wow. So um, 6 million jobs were lost. And when you look at what type of an impact that has on an industry, right, it's, it's, it's very significant. Um, not entirely different from what happened to the airline industry back then. And um, the manufacturers who find themselves still in business today um, have fewer competitors, right? And so business is booming. Um, things right. seem really, really great. Um, and on the surface, that's fantastic. Uh, however, there are still some underlying problems that are going to cause challenges for a number of years to come. So coming back to the innovation question, 50% um, of all patents filed in the U.S., are now filed by companies outside of the U.S. So that, that um, is just unbelievable. I, I had yeah. no idea. And, that and was when true. you think, yeah, when you think about that in relation to manufacturing, seventy percent of all patents are filed by manufacturers. So the impact on manufacturing is significantly higher than any other sector um, when you start looking at the innovation impact. Um, so there's just a significant amount of uh, innovation that's been lost. So when, when we started to move our, our manufacturing um, overseas and offshore, um, we also started to move our R&D, our IP, um, right. all those things followed, right? And so 
what ensued then was kind of this um, almost an implosion, if you will, of the, our manufacturing sector. And it's taking time for us to try to recover from that. And so um, those, those patents are a really good indicator of what's happened to the innovation um, in manufacturing in our country. Well, and, well, and, and also, also the, the, oh, I'm echoing. Can you hear that? It's okay on my end. Okay, um, I'll cut that out. Yeah. So Evelyn, one of the unintended consequences of moving offshore, first of all, uh, the manufacturers had had this supply chain increase, right? The cost of their supply chain increased substantially. So they had to move certain things offshore, right? And they were able to get the same or higher quality, you know, at the same or lower cost. Um, but then you had that 6 million people whose jobs were lost who had to find something else to do, right? They got retrained or I'm sure some of them, you know, are still in the unemployed ranks, although, you know, that's getting better and better. But let's shift and talk just a little bit about the workforce side of things, right? Because we, and again, I've seen this firsthand in my own life, again, this insufficient workforce for the folks who build both the bodies and, and the chassis on the trucks that my husband sell, that again, the downstream effect of that is now I can't take clothes to the dry cleaner, right? We have to do all of our laundry ourselves. Uh, I actually had to let our cleaning people go. And so, you know, they had a regular income stream from us. Um, You know, I mean, silly things, and I'm talking from a woman's perspective here, but, you know, I mean, I had to stop coloring my hair at at the hairdresser and had to start doing that myself. So every single one of those people that were providing service to me have also had to shift what they do. So the fact that, that uh, Peterbilt, right, as a truck manufacturer, can't add one more shift because they don't have sufficient trained workers in their communities, right? What's that going to look like in the future, right, as we have the baby boomers who are retiring, right? And these are the ones who, you know, they grew up working in Tool and Die and all of these things that have virtually disappeared from the landscape here in the U.S., yeah, no, and some really, really great points there, Chicky. In fact, I'll come back to your first one, which was really talking about, um, you know, the the costs of, of sending thing off, sending uh, manufacturing, right? Um, right? Um, when everyone believed that there's this there's this great savings, right? And that's true in some cases. However, um, you know, more and more information continues to come forward that is helping us to better understand that, that it's not always better and costs right. are not always better, right? So um, um, a recent statistic that really sticks in my mind is that, you know, from um, 2002 to 2012, supply chain costs rose 7%, from 52% to 59%. In the previous 10 years, from 92 to 2002, costs remained basically unchanged at 52%. Wow. So during that period when all of this offshoring was occurring, our supply chain costs were continuing to increase. And, um, and I'm not sure that's necessarily a statistic that people uh, are seeing often or have, have understood is that um, it wasn't necessarily um, better in all cases. And right. in many, many cases, it was worse because our overall trend is worse. Our costs have gone up. 
um, over that same period of time when we thought they should have been going down. And then another one um, that kind of goes to that same point is that um, every, each manufacturing dollar in the U.S. costs 95.6 cents to manufacture in China. So our cost savings that we think we're getting is, is so marginal that if right. everything else isn't exactly right, we don't actually realize those savings. And so, um, you know, this, there's this thought that everything's better there. But another, uh, you know, kind of eye-opening uh, trend that we're seeing is that uh, companies from all over the world now are actually purchasing manufacturing facilities and doing their manufacturing um, back in the U.S., <laughs> Which I find really ironic, right? That right. China now with increasing costs in energy and uh, increasing costs in labor and all those things are beginning to realize that, oh, we can actually manufacture some of this cheaper in the U.S. And so with that in mind, right, it brings um, to bear the second part of what you were bringing up, which is really the the workforce issue, right? So now we find ourselves in a very interesting situation where um, we have 93% of our manufacturers predicting that they are going to have a, a talent shortage um, due to retiring baby boomers, right? Where right. Um, just that, that one statistic alone has a huge impact, right? But um, at least 75% of manufacturers are reporting a severe to moderate shortage of workers. And many of them are saying within the next two to three years, they will um, not be able to maintain or grow operations due to workforce issues. And right. so, so, so let, let me just interject one thing here yeah. because this was the discussion at dinner that night of, and again, this is the why should our listeners care about this, right? Because right. we're the ones who our kids are, you know, either coming up through uh, middle school and high school and trying to decide what they want to do and be, right? And my kids happen to go to a Christian school. Uh, they both uh, graduated now, but they both went to a Christian school that was so hell-bent, well, and isn't that ironic, hell-bent as a Christian school, on ensuring that they had a 100% of the graduates get accepted to one or more colleges, right? And that they would go in to college. They weren't encouraging them to be entrepreneurs. They absolutely were not encouraging them to go into anything in the trades. And so what motivation do these kids have to even explore what the opportunities would be? Because there can't ever be a backfilling of that loss of, of worker talent from the retiring baby boomers if you don't have kids who are coming out and understanding that they can make. Uh, you told me a story, I think, about how much you can make being a, uh, a nuclear welder. Was that right, yeah. correct? Can yeah. you tell that story? Yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's astonishing, right? When you start looking at particularly some of the newer types of manufacturing, um, advanced materials manufacturing, composites, um, they're new and exciting types of manufacturing, which uh, um, should be really attractive, right, to our our younger generation. Um, however, to your point, um, most of them have no clue that those jobs even exist, and uh, or how much you can make from them. So right. uh, if if they actually understood that. You know, I go get my four-year degree now, 
And I'm going to be battling with, you know, how many other millions of uh, kids who just got a four-year degree for a certain segment of, of jobs, right? Um, or I could take um, two years and go get a, a welding certificate. And by the way, I would be working during the time I was uh, being educated. And I can probably have my employer pay for my education. Right. I'd come away with zero loads, you know, and, uh, and really come ahead. Um, during my schooling. And then when I graduate, um, you know, I can go into these specialty areas like nuclear welding, well over six figures, right, um, for a nuclear welder. And, uh, and there are so many jobs just like that, right? right. And our, I don't think our younger generation see or understand um, what those jobs look like. They don't, but the parents do that. play a role, right? Those oh, of us yeah. who, and our audience, Alan, for this show uh, are executives, right? People just uh, like you and I, either corporate executives or, or entrepreneurial executives. And we have the ability, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show, is because we're reaching the people who have the kids who maybe their kids graduated four or five or six years ago and are back living in their basement, right? Cause they can't get a decent I, job and they're working in a fast food restaurant or, you know, carrying out groceries at the grocery store and, and to go back and get some of these certifications um, we have to find a way to make that look appealing and to really show the end game of, hey, if you want to have a family someday and you want to live in a nice house like your mom and dad did, you may be doing that very different, differently than we did. And right. yes, you've watched your parents become workaholics and working, you know, 60 to 80 hours a week. Well, how would you like to work 40 hours a week, right? And to actually be able to come home and do what you enjoy instead of being tied to a cell phone or a computer like your parents are, right? We need to tell the story differently. Yeah, yeah, you're so right, Chickie. And, and if, the, you know, if those who are listening hear nothing else from our conversation today, I, I would hope that they would hear that message that, you know, that there's a different way. We all kind of have this expectation. We want our kids to go and get a college degree, a college education, right? And um, it, we're, we're all almost programmed from the time we start into school um, right. that we've got to go get that four-year degree. Um, and, and that's great. If, uh, if you feel strongly about that, go that direction and, and go get the degree. However, um, if we're not also presenting the other opportunities to our children, I think we're doing them a great disservice, not just them, but ourselves as well, because um, the more our manufacturing sector is impacted, the greater impact it has on every single one of us. And if we're not encouraging our younger generation to get involved, to get into manufacturing, find some of those fantastic jobs that exist in manufacturing, and to make a, a life and a career out of it, then, then I think we're missing something here. Right. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm concerned, actually, that those 6 million people who lost jobs um, and this would be uh, probably my own inclination to go home and be very upset and distraught at my industry. So much so that I would probably tell my kids, whatever you do, don't go into manufacturing. Exactly. <laughs> right. right? Exactly. So, so how far has that message uh, been carried? Right. And so now that the manufacturing sector is really making this comeback, um, we're not seeing the comeback of the workforce. And, right. uh, and that could have some really devastating uh, consequences if if we don't get that message out and we don't get more people looking at and following on the, 
the path that can lead them down some fantastic. Right. Now I want to talk about a couple of other things. And, and one of the things that, that really uh, drew me to continue to talk to you at, at this conference that we attended is, is you talked about so many things that I care about. Um, one of them, you talked uh, about the, the company that you have built and, and one of the tools that you uh, are working on and continuing to work on is this marketplace where you're helping manufacturers find the resources that they need. And, and one of, again, the unintended consequences of pushing things offshore is we lost control not only of intellectual property, but really of security and data security and, and understanding who the workers were in those companies that we were using to do, uh, you know, either to provide services or, or to provide parts uh, and, and equipment. And for instance, if you're a government uh, contractor, right, you have to know who you're dealing with. And so you talked a little bit about the security issue of, of really knowing who your downline suppliers are. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of the government policy side uh, of what's putting pressure on manufacturing? Yeah, yeah. There, there's a few things there I think that are, are probably worth mentioning, Chicky. Um, oh, the first one uh, you talked about the the manufacturers marketplace, and if if people have an interest in in finding out more, they can go to manufacturersmarketplace.us. Um, we actually have built it in partnership with the National Association of Manufacturers out in Washington D.C. And most people will uh, think of NAM, and everyone kind of affectionately refers to them as NAM, but they, they'll think of the NAM as um, this policy um, organization, right? But a few years ago, NAM really realized that they needed to do, to do more to help the industry, not just policy. Policy is part of it, but if they weren't doing more to help the industry, then they weren't really fulfilling their role. And so um, that's when they started looking at ways in which they could help. And, and they're, a, they're a nonprofit organization. Um, and so we started a number of smaller projects. Um, you know, coming back to the airline days, we were looking for this opportunity to be able to help an industry. And right. we could see it um, when we started talking to uh, people in the manufacturing industry. I, I'm actually based in the state of Utah and the, the state of Utah had run an economic study. And they were trying to improve the various uh, economic sectors in the state. Uh, manufacturing is one of those key sectors. And so when they went through that process, they realized uh, one of the things that came out of the study was they needed a way to better connect their manufacturers. Their goal and their intent was to keep more jobs in the state, to bring more jobs to the state, um, and obviously more revenue. And so um, we were actually um, selected to help build the solution first in the state of Utah. And then we rolled it nationally in partnership with the National Association of Manufacturers. But the entire intent of that is that we would be able to shorten the supply chain, strengthen the supply chain, and um, allow manufacturers to look local first, right, and, and grow that way. It didn't mean that there was not going to be any offshoring. What it meant was, um, if there's a possibility for us to shorten our supply chain and cut cost out of our supply chain by finding someone closer to our facility, we absolutely should be able to do that. And as we looked at the solutions that were available in the marketplace, there was nothing that truly helps a manufacturer do that. Um, and so that's what really drove us to create the solution. Um, and it made perfect sense that we would partner with somebody who was um, in industry first off, because manufacturers told us, they said, look, um, this has to be an industry solution. It can't be a government solution. It can't be an academic solution. 
So um, it's not going to come out of the university and it's not going to come from um, whatever government agency. This has to come from industry. And uh, so the industry leading uh, body in that in, in representation, um, if you will, was really coming from uh, the NAM. And so it, it made perfect sense that we would partner with them. Sorry about that. Can you restart that thought? Uh, I so uh, I'll, I'll try to step back uh, just about halfway through where I was. Okay. So it really made sense that we would partner with um, the National Association of Manufacturers as an industry leading body that would put forward a solution to actually help the industry um, and not have it just be uh, the solution um, for someone else to profit uh, necessarily by, but more a solution that would help to solve the problem. And, um, you know, I remember looking at, uh, or sitting in a presentation being given by NIST, and um, they showed in that pic, in the uh, presentation, a picture of a US fighter jet and a Chinese fighter jet. They were absolutely identical. Right. And then um, they, you know, same thing with a tank and a whole bunch of other things. And their point was, look, we, we, we took a step too far, right? And so a lot of our, um, as you mentioned, intellectual property and things like that have gone uh, overseas and are being used by virtually everyone else in the world. Well, that's caused some security issues and some challenges. So DOD um, faces all kinds of uh, concerns about uh, the loss of innovation from the U.S. You talked about tool right. and die earlier, you know, our, almost our entire tool and die industry has moved overseas and our ability just to manufacture the equipment that we need because we need tool and die to be able to do that um, is, is very, very fragile. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of issues kind of baked into there. But what I would say coming out of that is that, um, you know, I think most eyes are now open to the fact that we have an issue. We need to be able to better understand who we're doing business with. Um, we need to better understand um, the impact of uh, moving certain uh, portions of our industries overseas. And, um, you know, how we deal with that um, when we're in that kind of a situation. And so um, the, this uh, solution has really been able to, to bring manufacturers closer together. And I'll give you just a quick example. When we first started, we built a small platform um, here in the state of Utah. And there was a large uh, government contractor who was uh, getting ready to award a $70 million contract out of the state. And they said, okay, we've been working on this. Let's see if we can find someone in the state. So their uh, purchasing people had already looked um, in the state and they said, no, I'm sorry, but there is no one in the state of Utah who could do this because it's really tight specifications. They have to have certain uh, uh, certifications and credentials to be able to work with us and all these things. Um, and there's no one who's got the excess capacity and all that to be able to do it. And so we said, okay, well, that's a great challenge. Then why don't we look and see? Two miles from their facility, we found the exact manufacturer that they needed. They had the right certification, <laughs> specifications, everything fit. And they awarded the contract here in the state. Wow. And that really opened everyone's eyes to the fact that, okay, look, the tools we're using today don't truly allow us to shorten and strengthen our supply chain. They just simply don't. Um, and we knew that the solution uh, would have a massive impact to this industry because 
it allows us to find those um, manufacturers closer to our facilities who can deliver what we need. Um, but it, that can't exist, it can't happen unless a platform similar to the one we've built has been put in place where you can search and find a manufacturer based on what they do, not just on what they produce. Right. And we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, how uh, wouldn't it be amazing if we had this same thing on the services side from, from a group uh, like the C-Suite Network that you and I are both members of, if we could find other people within our own network that can provide services. In fact, when I came back from that conference, uh, you know, I always get uh, bombarded with offers, you know, whether it be offshore uh, programming or, you know, lead generation services. And I just began saying immediately, uh, I don't do business outside of the C-suite network. And so it was really an amazing realization that we could potentially take what you have built and to customize that on the services sector as well so that I can look within a closed loop and whether that's my community, my state, my, my association, my organization, right, and find people who can, can service me you know, within that. So I'm excited to uh, continue to explore that with you. For those who are listening uh, to us, Alan, can you just talk very, very briefly in the, in the few minutes that we have left over uh, about the Manufacturing Council at the C-Suite Network that you are leading? And what is it that you are trying to accomplish with that group? And who should consider being a part of the Manufacturing Council? Uh, that, that's a great question, Chicky. And, you know, um, it took me a while to agree to uh, start the Manufacturing Council. Um, I, after all, I am the CEO of a technology company. Right. And, uh, <laughs> so it seems a little odd that I would be the one leading the uh, Manufacturing Council in the C-suite. But um, after a little urging and some conversations, I realized that what we bring to to play or bring bring to bear in that um, in the manufacturing sector and particularly in the C-suite uh, manufacturing council is that we've been through this before a number of times in helping industries change and um, we are um, you know neck deep in manufacturing in so many different ways and so uh, because of the role that we play there um, we felt it was appropriate to kind of step in and start the council. Um, and really, the council is intended and designed to bring together people who really care about manufacturing and who care about the future of manufacturing, who care about what happens to manufacturing. And a stronger U.S. manufacturing base strengthens the entire world of manufacturing. And so, um, you know, a lot of our discussion centers on, on, you know, how do we strengthen the U.S. manufacturing base? And that is, in reality, one of the keys to being able to strengthen manufacturing worldwide. And so we want those who care about manufacturing and the future of manufacturing. We want thought leaders um, who really uh, can help us come up with innovative solutions and um, be able to discuss in, and debate uh, the problems and be able to come up with ideas and thoughts and uh, thought leading uh, content that we can publish that will help everyone understand what the problems are, right. what the solutions are how we get to those solutions. Um, we want influencers and leaders who will help to bring about that change and people who are even disruptors, innovators, pe people who will help us bring about the change in the industry. And um, the C-Suite Manufacturing Council gives us that mechanism or that vehicle, if you will, 
whereby we can bring together those people and we can um, put those thoughts out and we can help bring about the change uh, in the industry. Ellen, if they want to know more about the C-Suite uh, Manufacturing Council uh, or they would just like to get in touch with you, what is the best way to do that? Uh, um, so you can go to the website for the Manufacturing Council, with the, which is c-suite-mfgcouncil.com. Um, you can go to the I-5 Services website, which might be a little bit easier to remember. It's just the letter I, the number five, the word services.com, and there's links there. Uh, you can go to the C-Suite Network, um, and there are links there to their councils, and you can find the Manufacturing Council and get to us that way. Um, and you're always welcome to reach directly to me if you would like. Um, it's just alan.davis at i5services.com. Um, and so you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, there's a lot of different ways to, to connect these days, thankfully. And so um, right. I would... I would oh. Alan, I think I've lost you. Vicki, can you hear me? I can hear you. I, yeah, I can hear you now. And, and again, I'm going to do a bunch of editing on this, so we'll get all of this cleaned up. Okay. So, Alan, thank you so, so much for spending your time with us today and, and telling us more about this important issue. And, and I would also encourage those who can help on the storytelling side. I think that there is uh, absolutely a need for innovators and disruptors who can help people understand why manufacturing is so critical to our society, right? And, and to the economy of our country, for sure. Uh, and those of us who aren't directly involved in manufacturing, as Alan has so eloquently said, we are all impacted by it. So for those of you who believe you can add value to what Alan is doing with the Manufacturing Council, uh, please get in touch with him and join the council. First of all, you will absolutely love the C-Suite Network. And uh, by being a part of the council, you actually get to benefit from that. And there are other components of it, like the Hero Club that I belong to. And uh, encourage others who can make an impact uh, to, to come and join as well. And I know Alan's door is absolutely open. And Alan, thank you so much uh, again for your time and, and for caring about something that is so vital to our country. Thank you, Chickie. I really appreciate the opportunity and thank you for the discussion and, and thank you for, um, you know, such a, a wonderful opportunity and um, really thank you for the conversations we've had and it's really been a pleasure. Uh, to get to know you, and I appreciate who you are and what you stand for. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and uh, it has been terrific, and uh, again, for those who are listening, you've been listening to The Game Changer, and we have been talking with Alan Davis, and if you want to go out and change your game today, talk to a young person about the trades and looking at the amazing opportunities that are available in manufacturing. Thanks so much for joining us today and have a, just a terrific rest of the week. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas, inspiration, innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald. Like what you just heard, visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business.